Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Howard Spira, Chief Information Officer of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Howard, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. So this is my first time having the CIO of the XMIM Bank on. Let's just start with the beginning. I always like to get a sense when I have new CIOs on my program, what they do and what their agency does. So what is the mission of the Export-Import Bank? The Export-Import Bank is an independent uh, federal agency, and our mission is to support uh, U.S. jobs. The way we do that is uh, when companies sell, they can sell domestically. They can also export or sell internationally. And in order to do that, they need to be able to compete on a, I'll call it a level playing field. And oftentimes, in order to be able to get people to buy American product, they need to be able to get some kind of financing or insurance to assure that they're going to get paid. And that's what the Export-Import Bank does. We have everything from, I'll call it large clients like Boeing, Caterpillar, General Electric that sells, I'll call it, large manufactured items uh, overseas. And then we have a lot of small and medium-sized entrepreneurial businesses in the United States that need to export product. So it almost sounds like you are giving them the confidence that says, we think going international, selling your products, selling your services internationally is a good thing. We're going we're gonna to give you that extra push so you feel confident that you can do that. Yeah, that extra push is something that the, sometimes the private uh, market can do. But we step in when the private market isn't there. So if you're trying to export to Africa, oftentimes your bank's going to look at you if you want to get, I'll call it credit insurance to ensure you're going to get paid and say, we don't do business in Africa. Well, the Export-Import Bank will underwrite risk in Africa. And sometimes we also uh, have American companies go up against, I'll call it national champions from other countries. And that requires, I'll call it sophisticated financing and sometimes guarantees in order to be able to uh, compete. Very interesting because I think one of the things people forget about is, well, they think the globalization of the of our universe, if you will, the ability, oh, you can go online, you can put something online, just go do it. But it's much different when you're talking about whether it's Boeing or Caterpillar or even smaller, medium-sized firms that are just trying to reach new markets. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about you as the CIO. How do you support that mission of the Export-Import Bank? We uh, support the mission in all kinds of ways. First of all, if you think about us, notwithstanding that I said we're an independent federal agency, we're actually look more like, I'll call it a commercial bank or an investment bank. So first of all, all of the product that we create, even though it takes some financial engineering, is represented in, in IT. So our uh, IT, to a large extent, is actually our, our product, uh, just like when you go to, I'll call it most any bank, if you think about it, the product is really IT. In addition, we support all of, I'll call it, the administrative processes of the uh, of, of the bank and Running any institution now, there's also a lot of, I'll call it, personal productivity. So the entire personal productivity portfolio of the bank, things like Internet access, Microsoft Office, Skype, you know, these are all capabilities that we support. In addition to that kind of, I'll call it, uh, you know, these are things we support. We do an incredible amount of work, I'll call it, uh, consulting, strategizing, and helping our bank uh, understand uh, the role technology not only does play, but has the potential uh, to play as we go to market. Do you have employees all in the D.C. area, or are they located throughout the U.S. or even throughout the world? Most of our employees are here in the D.C. Uh, uh, area. So uh, we don't have a particularly large uh, footprint outside of uh, D.C. That said, we have a lot of people who travel uh, internationally, and we do have some, uh, I'll call it, rep offices uh, throughout the United States so we can be closer to our domestic customers. And when you talk about your role as CIO, are you supporting not just those people who travel, not those 
people that that the the few the few that are outside the DC area, but the internal customers too. You're probably facing that. Okay, how do you get the next best thing, but also keep the trains running on time? Sure. So you have to find that balance. Yep. When you look at yourself, are you a strategic CIO? Are you an operational CIO? Are you a little bit of both? I'd like to think I'm a little bit of both. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if you can't make the trains run on time, you're not going to be a CIO. And, uh, you know, we're a relatively small agency, so the total number of uh, federal staff is only about 400. Uh, they tend to be, I'll call it, high-value staff, a lot of GS-13s, uh, 14s, and 15s uh, at, at, at the bank. Do you get a sense that because it's a small organization that makes your job that's why you have the foot kind of in both sides where you have to you have to know what the operations are you have to know when the servers are updated and make sure that you have internet connection at the same time you have to go okay what's the next thing that they will need to help them do their job better i mean that's that's what i hear from a lot of smaller agency cios yeah well i think smaller agency cios uh you know there's certainly some challenges but you know i i would say any cio has to make sure like i said basic operations happen and uh, actually, I think if you're not focused on strategy, then the question is, is it really a CIO position? I think at a small agency, your ability to roll up your sleeves and understanding what's happening in all the domains that you're going to be held accountable for is, uh, I'll call it, particularly interesting and challenging. And I know when talking to a lot of different small agency CIOs, they like that piece. They like the, a lot of the times people's their background is, well, I was a coder, I was an engineer. So I still get my hands dirty a little bit because a lot of the bigger agency CIOs, people I know you probably talk to, mm -hmm. they're they all at the strategic level. They're all at the management level. And not everyone loves that, I think. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I, I certainly don't do any coding <laughs> at this point. But what I would say is my familiarity with uh, a number of issues that I think larger CIOs, you know, they would have their director or their deputy who would uh, understand that the, the number of, I'll call it, uh, topics that a small agency CIO is expected to really uh, master is in, is important. Let's talk about your staff a little bit. How big is your office? How many federal employees? How many contractors? Your IT budget? Start with how many federal employees that work in the IT world? At the bank, I have approximately uh, uh, 30 federal staff. And at any time, depending on the project portfolio uh, we have, we may have a base operations-oriented contractors of, I'll call it, uh, between 30 and 40 persons, and then we may uh, significantly plus up if we've got a significant project in the house. Now, that's about a one-to-one -one ratio, give or take, on the project. Is that good for you? Or are you or Were you surprised that that ratio is so close? Because a lot of times when I talk to CIOs, the ratio is three-to-one, four-to-one, five-to-one contractors to feds. You know, if you look back maybe five or more years ago, you might have seen a ratio more like that. But I think it's really about the technology portfolio that we have. We have a lot more uh, clouds, software as a service, platforms as a service. So those staff that would either normally be contractor or potentially feds are now being wrapped up into these, I'll call it, more complex, larger arrangements where you've truly outsourced a capability uh, to them. So they're there. They're just not, I'll call it, uh, butts in the seats the way you'd see them if you, like I said, look back five, 10 years ago. And I think that's the big change that's happening across all of the federal government where they're used to the butts in the seats idea. But now, well, that's a software as a service. So those people who are managing, if you will, in the cloud, which right. we, we love that discussion in the cloud. And just real briefly, your IT budget for 2018, give me a sense if you can. Sure. From an O&M uh, perspective, uh, we run approximately uh, 15 million per year. And then, I, and then uh, I'll collect... Uh, projects would be on top of that. A decent amount. I know a lot of vendors listen to this show, so you give them a sense of, of how big you guys are. A lot of times, 
you know, I talked to small agency CEOs. Oh, we're nothing. We were barely a million dollars. So mm -hmm. 15 million is a good amount. Let's discuss your background a little bit. Now, you've been at the Export-Import Bank since 2014. Uh, where else have you worked inside and out of government? And, and you've been the CIO since 2014 or before then? Yeah, since uh, 2014. I came to the bank in uh, December of 2014. Prior to that, I was serving with the uh, United States Treasury. I was uh, the chief information officer. I guess they called it chief technology officer of the Office of Financial Stability. That was the office that was set up to manage the uh, financial uh, crisis. So uh, that was my first experience in government. Prior to that, I worked for uh, part of uh, Goldman Sachs in uh, Tokyo. And uh, prior to that, I was the chief information officer of GE Capital's commercial finance division for about 10 years. And how'd you end up with the government? Did you get recruited from somebody in treasury or did you see a job opening and said, I want to help? A lot of times the, the story always uh, fascinates me. It was a job opening and I wanted to help. Like I said, I was in Tokyo. Uh, we were experiencing the worst financial meltdown in, uh, I'll call it, in U.S. history since the Great uh, Depression. I happened to be paging through a Wall Street Journal that was in my office and they said, we need a chief information officer or director of technology for the financial rescue program. I thought I might have something to contribute. Talk a little bit about that job just briefly. Was that an incredible experience? You're walking in at a time when there's a lot of concern, a lot of worry, and you know you got to get the systems running. The, the the TARP program that was came up that had a lot of big data, a lot of data mm -hmm. analytics. Just real quick about that that experience. It was big, but it wasn't big data, and it wasn't big analytics. It was big in terms of impact. It was big in terms of the monies involved that were uh, dedicated to the program. It was uh, big because we were on the verge of uh, basically a national uh, emergency, a national crisis. You know, depending on who you read, had the government not intervened, we might have had an uncontrolled failure of the financial system. And that's what our team was about, to make sure that didn't happen. And as you ended up at the Export-Import Bank, again, was this just a happenstance? Did your job end at Treasury? Or did you just, again, another job opening, try something new? The TARP program was uh, incredibly successful. We were able to... Uh, instill uh, confidence in the financial system. We were able to recover uh, all of the money that we invested on behalf of the taxpayers in order to, uh, I'll call it, perform that activity. And basically, I'd been there five years, and we had substantially wound down the program from approximately, I think, $450 billion that we had out to when I left. I think we were down to only several billion uh, left to, um, uh, to recover. Excellent. Excellent. Now, obviously, you're enjoying your time at the Export-Import Bank. You've been there almost four years, so... Uh, mm -hmm. Sounds like a, a pretty good job, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump into some priorities and some things you're working on. My guest is Howard Spira, the CIO of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Howard Spira the Chief Information Officer of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Howard, in the first segment of the show, we got to know you a little bit. We learned about how you got to uh, Export-Import Bank and, and your time at the Treasury Department. Let's jump into some of your priorities, some of your challenges here at the Export-Import Bank. There was a recent Inspector General report, and we all love our Inspector Generals. We know that. Two things that stood out to me. Number one, it praised your efforts around the IT infrastructure and, and the deployment of new systems. So let's talk about that a little bit. What changes have you made to improve the Export-Import Bank's IT infrastructure, and of course, that the, my favorite topic, cloud, how does that fit into this discussion? So first of all, we get an Inspector General's report uh, every year, the uh, the FISMA report, and I assume that's what you're speaking about. 
And I consider uh, looking at those reports as a, as a great sort of third-party assessment of what's happening at the agency and what are we doing to address, to address that. I don't think what we've been doing is, I'll call it, particularly sexy, but there are a couple key things. One is we're, I'll call it, just a lot of focus on, on nuts and bolts, operations and maintenance and hygiene, and I'll call it sort of modernization. So when I got to the Export-Import uh, Bank, I think we had a lot of challenges in this area. And uh, I would simply say that I've got a lot of experience in, in operations and I'll call it setting the tone, setting the measures, helping to create the budget transparency and, uh, and I'll call it strategy transparency so that we can get the budget that we need, get the staff that we need to address these issues is foundational. In addition, uh, we've been v- focused very much on ensuring that our, I'll call it our portfolio is state of the market. And that we're approaching it in state of the market ways. And that is basically if uh, there's something that, unless there is something very special about it, we ought to be able to uh, take care of a large part of our infrastructure portfolio with commercial off the shelf or uh, potentially I'll call it GOTS uh, software. So if we don't need to do something that is uh, bespoke or, or, or special, we shouldn't be doing uh, that. And I think bringing that clarity of, of vision was one of the first things. That we uh, uh, that we did, and then we just focused on on execution. When you had gotten to the Export Import Bank in 2014, was it missing some of the basic, if you will, building blocks of IT infrastructure? Not the hardware and software pieces. That's a, probably another discussion. But the governance, the you know enterprise architecture type things, or did you have some of those things, but they just weren't acted upon? I think we actually had a lot of the pieces that were put in place. I was very fortunate that the uh, CIO who uh, I think uh, preceded me, you know, recognized a lot of the gaps. But there's one, there's a difference between recognizing the gaps and then being able to create the action, I'll, I'll call it, around those gaps to actually address them. And I think that's where that's where I focused. Like I said, what are the budget issues? What are the personnel issues? What are the procurement issues to move these ideas from ideas into into action? So as you mentioned a little bit earlier, a large part of that was moving from, I'll call it, on-prem capabilities to cloud-based capabilities, moving from, if you will, installed software to uh, platform as a service or software as a service. So, for example, when I got to uh, XM, one of the first things that I focused on was the completion of a uh, very challenging project to move us from an in-house general ledger to a uh, basically a, an Oracle-managed cloud-based uh, general ledger. So the like I said, it's not only the uh, uh, the hardware, but the software and an important piece of, I'll call it, the operations, both primary as well as backup and recovery, is out there now in the cloud. Talk a little bit about that effort, maybe. That's a that's a big lift. A lot of agencies are trying to move the general ledger piece, DOD. We could have a whole conversation about them. How did that kind of lay the groundwork for other moving other things to the cloud that gave you that first if you will success story i imagine my predecessor deserves a lot of credit for coming up with a lot of ideas and like i said i focused a a lot on the execution so i think the other major uh piece of our portfolio that we uh moved was uh getting to office uh, 365 it actually occurred uh, just before i had uh, gotten there but we did a tremendous amount of work i'll call it tuning uh, that venture and making sure that that venture wasn't only, I'll call it, out there in the cloud, but it was out there in the cloud and actually working for us in the way that we wanted it to work. So one of the things that we did after we uh, got there was moved from actually just the email offering to the complete, I'll call it, 
suite of capabilities that Microsoft uh, uh, has. And those additional capabilities that were really critical and important were things like Skype for Business that brought us video uh, conferencing, uh, text, the ability to uh, do a conference call without having to reserve it. So it has integrated personal conferencing in. So I think what had happened is we'd started into a lot of these things, but had really not focused on the, I'll call it, the closeout and the execution that you need in order to turn it from just a cloud offering, but a successful cloud deployment. About how much of your technologies in the cloud today are using software as a service platform as a service for 40%, for 80%? Can, can you give me an estimate? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how you measure it, but my, uh, I would think if you had to bring everything back in-house and, and sort of you know tally it up uh, again, that somewhere between 60 and 70% of our portfolio from a sort of an IT mass is out there now using some form of PaaS, SaaS, or infrastructure as a service. Was this an easy decision, not just by you as the CIO, but by the Export Import Bank more, more broadly, your boss and your boss's boss, did they get why the cloud is so important, how it can lead you down to better services, better capabilities, and hopefully better security? I think at one level they got it, but it, at the end of the day, execution is everything. So if the team isn't working with the vendor to make it work, right, on a day-to-day -day basis in, in the interaction that every, I'll call it, stakeholder or customer uh, or uh, end user has with that technology, if we're not focused on that, people aren't going to have confidence uh, in it. And I think we focused on, uh, uh, I'll call it, that piece because simply moving it out, uh, while I think some people got it, uh, we're certainly recognizing at the time I came on board that that was not enough. What about looking forward? If you have about 60 to 70%, I know that's just a guesstimate in some ways. Do you expect to be you know, closer to 80 to 90% eventually? Do you have other things that you're looking at moving to the cloud in the next you know, six, nine months a year? Yeah, I don't know if I can say six to nine months or, or a year, but there are uh, other pieces of our portfolio that we've definitely targeted for moving out. For example, right now from a uh, COOP perspective, we do uh, coop with another uh, federal agency and pay uh, them. That looks like an easy target uh, for the cloud. We have uh, some other activities in the sort of, I'll call it, in, in the tape and backup management that look like easy moves to the uh, cloud. In the uh, security space uh, now, particularly in the, um, in sort of in the uh, audit logging and log coordination, uh, I don't even know if there are vendors who sell on-prem uh, solutions anymore. Uh, when you look at the amount of data that has to be handled, if you look at what you're tying together, that's moving uh, to the cloud. And then the other thing that I would say is, as you start moving everything to the cloud, there are almost other things that have to follow. How do you do security in the cloud if some of your security isn't in <laughs> in the cloud? You make a great point because I think you know it's this snowball effect of, hey, now that this is here, well, we can't bring that back on-prem. Let's push that to the cloud. Mm -hmm. But the other piece of the IG report that I think is related to this is this, this the IG praised your efforts around developing new systems. There's a huge push going all across government about IT modernization, getting off legacy systems. Talk about where you started and maybe how you progressed over the last, you know, a couple of years. You know, like uh, every agency, we have a list of our, our systems and their birth dates. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, some of them are getting a little bit long on the tooth. And uh, we have a strategy around, uh, I'll call it each one, uh, that, that is not what I'll call state of the market to get there. Um, but the other thing that I'd add, Jason, is 
our focus as well as the broader USG's focus on cybersecurity has been a very important consideration in, in I'll call it, addressing legacy uh, apps. It is just not possible to secure uh, legacy apps that are not running on, I'll call it, supported operating systems or, or with, I'll call it, other componentry that you'll find in a custom software environment that is not actively being supported and, and, and patched. It's interesting you talk about you have a list of the system's birth dates. I got to ask, uh, any, anything uh, pre-1980, anything pre-1960, anything uh, older than uh, you and me? We're fortunate that, no, nothing older than, than uh, you or me. I'm not exactly sure how old you are, but uh, I think our, our oldest system actually dates from, uh, as I understand it, the, mid, uh, the mid-80s. And so what I was going to say on, on that system, we've been able to do some replatforming, so we're not really car- carrying legacy hardware. So actually most of it's sitting on, on uh, uh, you know, through virtualization and, and the like. We're able to, to resolve a lot, a lot of the old hardware uh, questions, but the uh, software and its sort of internal componentry is, um, it, you know, these things are long out of support. Are you doing at the same time this idea of application rationalization? Because when I talk to CIOs quite often, they talk cloud, they talk cyber, and then they talk application rationalization because this is the perfect time to kind of push through this. Or are you guys not that big that maybe you already know kind of the you push through the duplication, the redundancy in terms of the number of apps you have? We, we took a very strong look at how we can simplify the environment. I mean, look, running any environment is a complex business, and uh, you shouldn't make it any harder than you need to. And so I think uh, being incredibly aggressive about saying, how can we simplify our uh, portfolio and asking that question every year, right? And uh, creating focus and accountability on, on, on doing that is a very important piece of, I'll call it, you know, our process. Every year, particularly in, in the package software space, the, the functional coverage of any particular piece of software will evolve. So something that used to often require a piece of, I'll call it uh, a unique piece of software, you know, two, three years later, it's like, oh, it can do that too now. So why do we need product A and product uh, B? And uh, so I think if you're going to keep that environment uh, simple and clean and as, I'll call it, expensive and as easy to maintain as possible, you've got to have a, a, a significant focus on constantly simplifying the environment. I think that's a great approach saying how can we simplify it doesn't necessarily have to be rationalization or doesn't have to be getting rid of the duplication but make it as simple as possible that's a, it's a great great piece of advice howard let's take a quick break when we come back we can jump into those cybersecurity challenges you, you mentioned a little bit my guest is howard spira the cio of the export and import bank of the united states i'm jason miller and you're listening to ask the cio on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Howard Spira, the Chief Information Officer of the Export and Import Bank of the United States. Howard, before break, we were talking about some of the things that IG praised you about, uh, system development, IT infrastructure improvements. Let's move on to the thing that I think every IG tells every CIO there's some progress made, more progress needed, which is cybersecurity. Let's talk, generally speaking, what kind of steps are you taking to address some of the shortcomings that auditors pointed out? And then we'll talk about one of my favorite topics, the Continued Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. Start with addressing some of the shortcomings. A lot of our focus with the uh, IG was what they said about our maturity assessment. Actually, from, I'll call it a standard audit perspective, I considered our activity relatively clean other than uh, remarks that they made about uh, vulnerability 
management. But nowadays, a FISMA audit, like I said, it's not just about controls testing and what did they find, but it's a maturity assessment, which says a lot about the resiliency of your program and your program's ability to uh, evolve. The other thing I'd point out, with regard to cybersecurity, the goalposts move every year. And one of the most interesting things that uh, I've had to bring the rest of my executive colleagues up to speed on is with respect to cyber, expect that they will move the goalpost every year, that there is no baseline that will be held, I'll call it static, on this topic. And that's because the threats change, the different types of threats. Years ago, it was phishing. Now it's spear phishing. Years ago, it was all about do you have the right, if you will, moats and high walls? And now it's more about, are you protecting the data? I think that's mm-hmm. the biggest thing that people get their head around. You know, based on your private sector experience, do you think, and I know it's been more than a decade, but do you think that the private sector has the same problems? Are you seeing, are you talking to your colleagues with the same challenges of getting their executives to understand the, the changes that are happening in cyber? Sure, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I was at a, actually at a conference of, uh, I'll call it banking CIOs and CISOs out in San Diego a little bit earlier in the year. And I'm sitting down mostly with private sector CIOs for financial institutions. They're talking about the same issues. So one of the things that I'd, I'd say is uh, I don't consider within the uh, federal government it's uh, significantly uh, different. I think, uh, frankly, as a federal agency, the expectations in the bar are very high. Can you go through maybe some of the steps you're taking to improve the cybersecurity? Well, I think there are a couple key components that we're focusing on. One is we've got a, I'm going to describe it as maniacal focus on, uh, I'll call it, ensuring that the retained portfolio, that's our on-prem environment, is working with state of the uh, market, I'll call it, hardware, operating systems, uh, software, all, all parts of the stack. And uh, because if, if, if we don't have, I'll call it, the nuts and bolts of configuration management, patch management, vulnerability assessment and, and, and monitoring, uh, you're nowhere in cybersecurity. Even today, with all of the, I'll call it, sophisticated things being done, most cybersecurity uh, problems come back to basic hygiene uh, issues. So we have a huge focus on basic uh, hygiene. You make a great point. If you don't do these basic pieces, nothing else matters. And I think that's been one of the shortcomings across the government is, is getting that basic cyber hygiene done. Are you guys doing anything different, anything special? Have, have you found the magic bullet to, to, to cyber hygiene? I don't know that there's any magic bullet. I think we focus on the following things. We focus on transparency. We focus on shared accountability. Because look, it's not just the CISO's job. If the head of systems engineering for us, uh, other folks might call it application development, are doing silly things, then they're part of the problem. If our infrastructure team doesn't know how to call it properly, uh, establish configurations, manage uh, configurations, deploy configurations, it's a cyber issue. So the first thing that I would say is we have, I think, much better transparency than we've ever had about what are our key metrics, what are the things that we're uh, looking at. We leverage CyberScope right? And the FISMA audit in this regard. But the other thing is, look, I have daily interaction, uh, but also on a weekly basis, a very formal process of reviewing, I'll call it, our operations and our project performance. And something that uh, gets discussed in those meetings, because this is meetings with all of my directs and one level down, is we review key elements of our cyber dashboard. 
and I think part of that is a signal you're sending to your coworkers that how how important this is. It comes up. We review the dashboard. We're taking the time. It's not just okay. So, so how's things going? Fine. Okay, let's move on. I think you got you as the the CIO and your bosses mm -hmm. hopefully are the ones that are paying attention and sending that message. One of the other pieces of this is the continuous diagnostics and mitigation, the CDM program. The Export Import Bank is one of the, if you will, Group F agencies, I, I think, meaning that they're the smaller agencies. Are you guys participating with CDM? Are you waiting for the, if you will, security as a service piece to come into to fruition? We're actually uh, participating. We're one of the uh, pilot groups uh, or pilot agencies that's uh, participating in, in, uh, in, in CDM. And so we're, uh, I'll call it, uh, partway through our initial uh, implementation. So we haven't started yet, but we've assigned our MOU with, with DHS. We've uh, established, I think, physical connectivity between us and the, uh, the hosting environment for the CDM tools. And we have a series of meetings, I'll call it, coming up over the next weeks and, and, and months to work through the implementation process. So I'm very excited about it. And you're using the CDM as a service. That's the pilot, correct? Yes. And, and the whole goal is that you'll get security operations center services, you'll get these tools, you'll get these sensors that are not necessarily on your network, but you're connecting to them through this, if you will, uh, I know it's not a VPN, but for this private connection. I'm simplifying it. I know that. Sure. No, it's okay to simplify. You know, the interesting thing is my director of infrastructure engineering tells me is the devil is in the details. And even though I think you've described it generally correct, there are certain decisions and options we've made uh, particularly with regard to the management of bandwidth. All of this security activity actually puts a significant load uh, with regard to requ requiring, I'll call it, bandwidth and compute. And so we've selected certain options that hopefully optimize our spend in in compute and, and bandwidth and, and just basically, I'll call it, thoughtfully manage where data gets collected, how it gets concentrated before it gets passed over connections uh, over to the, I'll call it, the, the other side. And from a timing standpoint, I know, and I'm not sure how much you're able to, to talk to this, but do you expect to be to begin the pilot this fall, this winter? Do you get a sense? I'm assuming it's a little bit later this year. I haven't looked at the exact schedule as a pilot. While we have a notional work plan, obviously we understand in a pilot that uh, sometimes uh, you come to a point on the plan and go, well, that wasn't exactly what how folks thought it was going to work. And so part of our commitment being part of the pilot is the feedback and, and helping them develop the rollout. So it, it becomes hopefully easier and more predictable for uh, agencies that come after us. Did you guys volunteer to be in the pilot or did they ask? How did you kind of get become one of those agencies? I can't remember if we asked or, or volunteered. We were very interested, I, I think, of uh, discovering what it was going to be like sooner rather than later. I guess my uh, uh, view is to the extent that we have capacity, I tend to uh, like to jump into those things because, you know, there's no time like the present, I think, for, for sorting out certain issues. And at the same time, DHS is paying for all of this, so you might as well take advantage of it as soon as possible versus coming on the back end. That's always, that's always nice, especially with cybersecurity. As you said, it's not a static effort. Sure. Well, I think one of the things is we were talked about the pluses and minuses with them of uh, going in early is the understanding is that we would have more, I'll call it personal time with them to work through the issues. It's interesting, though, that you talk about money, because while they are picking up a good deal of the cost at some point, though, those costs are borne by government and uh, the transparency and sorting out how uh, costs may hit our budget in the out years, though, is something that we've also been focusing on with them. All right, Howard, let's take another quick break. When we come back, we can uh, conclude our conversation talking about data, data management, and, of course, my favorite question about what vendors should know about working with your office. Mm -hmm. My guest is Howard Spira, 
the CIO of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Howard Spira, the CIO of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Howard, before break, we were talking about cybersecurity quite a bit. The main piece when you talk about cybersecurity, from, from my point of view, is really around data and how to protect the data. Maybe talk a little bit about from the Export-Import Bank's view, not just about cybersecurity of the data, of course, but how you're using data to make better decisions, how you're taking all the data from the companies, large and small, and understanding the challenges that maybe the operational side faces to meet your mission. So uh, talk a little bit about the data management piece of your effort. Our number one focus on on data is trying to get a 360 view of our, not only, uh, I'll call it, uh, our traditional customers, but our key stakeholders. It's a topic of tremendous conversation at the bank and and tremendous focus of a lot of strategy work that we're doing right now. So what I mean by that is during the life cycle of an interaction with a, let's say, an outside customer, we might have a lot of touches uh, with them. They may have shown up at our conference. They may have had an, an inquiry to us. They may have talked to one of our bankers. If everything's working out, we actually do a transaction with that, then we've got all, I'll call it that transaction in, information. Right now, our ability to pull that together in one seamless picture, easy to access of like, what is our complete history uh, with this uh, customer is something that we really think we have an opportunity to improve. Do you have the technology already or are you looking to buy or add new tools to integrate all that data? We have a lot of the technology, but we do have some gaps. And so I think the bigger issue is how do you stitch it all together? And, uh, you know, it's funny because we were talking about cloud earlier is, and then how do you do this, you know, when you've got these applications and they're not easily kind of sitting in-house, but they're potentially uh, sitting out there with uh, solutions with different vendors. And so this comes back a little bit to the discussion of how do we do it as simply as possible so we have the least amount of boundaries to work through as we try to create this uh, uh, integrated uh, view. I think requires a lot of discipline that we traditionally have not had to uh, not only talk about application architecture, but data architecture and some of our key goals and how we pull it all together. Do you get a sense that you guys at the Export-Import Bank are pretty good at using data to make decisions, whether it's around finance, like the general ledger example you used, or whether it's a technology, or whether it's more related to the mission, or maybe it depends? <laughs> you know, first of all, from a data perspective, we're not big data. Like I said, we're actually a relatively small agency and work with, uh, you know, I think a consultant once told us we have a data pond uh, <laughs> at, at best. But that said, you know, we have a lot of really uh, uh, sophisticated, smart uh, folks who work at XM and they'll have these interactions. And the question is, you know, how do we kind of tap all the places that we've touched a, uh, you know, as a customer or a stakeholder? So I think the, the issue for us is the, uh, I'll call it the errors of omission of not realizing that we had an, an, an interaction that uh, perhaps are the things that, that uh, end up, if you kind of look back and say, what do we regret? Those are the kinds of things that we see. You talked earlier about moving to the cloud and the, the, the changes in kind of how you want to use your data in a different way. That requires a different set of skill sets a lot of times for employees. Is the workforce challenge one of your biggest ones that you see day in and day out, ensuring that they have the right skill sets to meet today's needs and the future ones? I think anyone working in federal IT in a leadership role today has challenges in attracting Oakland, uh, not only uh, the talent that they need, but uh, working talent through all of the skill sets that you need uh, in order to be successful. Some of the things that I see, uh, Jason, is more and more people are 
only valuable if they can master multiple uh, domains. Typically, if someone's really good in one domain only, we've probably outsourced that capability. So my actual retained staff, I think, has to deal with much more complex set of issues. And they're not only technically complex, I'm going to call it they're administratively complex. So I think a large part of execution, particularly as I look at my staff, is they have to be very thoughtful about contract management. They have to be very thoughtful about uh, procurement. They have to understand um, the federal budget and be able to see around corners. So actually, interestingly for me, one of the big areas that I focused on initially when I came, and I think we've traditionally, we've significantly moved the bar, is that we knew we wanted to accomplish X. And by the time we uh, put it through the procurement process, the budget process, and and some of the other administrative processes, uh, you know, we wanted, uh, I'll call it uh, sausage, but we ended up with a hamburger. Okay, you know, they're both meats, but sometimes it felt like the tail was wagging the dog. What did you end up doing around the skill set training? Do you, do you guys use any special training approaches? Are you hiring in a different way? Because I'm sure that not only do they need to know technology, but a background in banking or at least some kind of trade would be also important. I think more and more to, to, if you will, to earn a seat, to be part of the retained staff, you have to understand our mission. If you don't understand our mission, then like I said, you could be sitting over at Microsoft right, and run that piece of our technology for us from, from out there. So with respect to understanding banking and understanding our mission, more and more people in order to be effective have to understand that. And with respect to some of the administrative stuff we've put a lot of focus on making sure people understand uh, basics of uh, of budget and and that people understand the basics of federal procurement. Not because we're trying to make them experts in that space, but it doesn't work if we have silos, right? We have to be able to collaborate with our 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 colleagues, and it's not possible to collaborate if you don't learn a little bit about I'll call it uh, the folks and the and the disciplines that you have to collaborate with. And I think that's probably the hardest point of getting people to understand that you're not just coming here to run IT, you're coming here to meet our mission. And our mission includes IT and includes so many other pieces and parts. Is, is that been the toughest part from a hiring perspective? Or do you guys find it hiring, you know, generally speaking, it's the government, but easy? I don't find hiring easy. I, you know, I don't know anyone who would Maybe say easy that. wasn't the right word. <laughs> Maybe simpler, <laughs> more straightforward. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's tough, and, and actually that's one of the administrative areas that, that we uh, focus on trying to understand. I mean, part of it is how do you collaborate with HR? How do you ask for uh, an option or an authority or a capability that, may, that they may not have uh, uh, offered? So obviously, look, we're trying to find the right talent. We're trying to do it efficiently. We're trying to do it uh, uh, fast, and we're trying to close uh, and, and we're trying to close deals. And um, that trait takes a tremendous amount of focus uh, in order to, to do effectively. And, and I don't think it's, uh, I'll call it easy in the federal space. No, it's not. I've, I hear that all the time from CIOs as well and others. that says even if you think it's easy, <laughs> it really isn't. Howard, this has been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, though, we're almost out of time. Before I let you go, one of the things that I, I know I always like to ask CIOs is about vendors. You, guys, you probably get calls and emails and people asking for your time. So here's your opportunity to, to kind of send a message to those our, our friends in the vendor community. How should they work with your office? Sure. Well, first of all, research us. I mean, one of the things you've heard on this call is, look, our O&M budget's only around $15 million, right? Our staff is only about 400 
Uh, while we're a federal government agency, fundamentally we look like a commercial bank or an investment bank. So we tend to share the types of I'll call it functional problems that those uh, uh, institutions uh, have. Look, there's there's no substitute for you know. Do you know your customer? Have you researched them? I just share one little uh, you know a funny story when I was uh, uh, heading up technology at uh, TARP. I had a vendor come in. Uh, and uh, all they wanted to do is tell me about how they could build aircraft carriers and that they'd handled the most sophisticated engineering and technical work within the USG. Uh, and, you know, it was incredibly impressive listening to them. But, uh, you know, basically, like I said, that was a little group of a very small uh, number of people. And what I needed was uh, not an aircraft carrier. What I needed was a speedboat, you know, with two outboard motors that I could drive up on a beach. <laughs> they didn't understand what your what your needs were. They just yeah. figured, oh, it's a big program with a lot of money. I'll just come in and say, here's I can do again you, as you use the aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so uh, let me put it this way: it would have been a much more effective conversation uh, if they weren't talking about aircraft carriers. But if they can, you know, how do you put a uh, a boat on a beach fast? Interesting. Okay. Well, that's good. Good advice. Good advice. And and Howard, this has been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. So let me thank my guest, Howard Spira, is the Chief Information Officer of the Export and Import Bank of the United States. Howard, thank you so much. Jason, thank you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 